we're back um, in chapter, paragraph 8 of chapter 22 of the Confession, um, particularly as it deals with keeping the Sabbath. Um, we've already considered the necessity of preparation before the Sabbath, with particular emphasis on the heart. Um, we've also looked at, as the Confession calls it, <clears throat> ordering our common affairs beforehand, um, getting things out of the way so that the next day can just um, be spent in, in whatever we have to do that day. Uh, furthermore, when we met two weeks ago, we looked particularly at the rest aspect of the Lord's Day, what we are to cease from. We mostly considered what our confession calls worldly employment, right, which has its probably its greatest reference to our job, um, but I would also say things on your to-do list, the normal things of life. Um, just because, you know, men, if you don't, you're not clocking into work on Sunday, uh, that doesn't mean it's the day for working on your car, right, unless it's a necessity. All of that stuff kind of falls underneath worldly employments. And we saw that we are to cease not just from doing those things, um, but even from, from speaking about them as, as insofar as we can and thinking about them. Um, and really, the goal is not to be legalistic. Oh, you spoke about your job, right? It's not, not to get caught up in that, but really that we would say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that because today I, I don't have to worry about that. My God will take care of me. Today I can just rest and worship, right? We saw that uh, resting, although work is a very good thing, it's not a bad thing. Um, on the other hand, it is good to not work and to rest and to be refreshed. Um, and especially, I would say, after the fall. We've kind of seen this in our recent sermons. There's kind of two ways you, could, you can look at the Sabbath from a spiritual perspective. You can look at it in the sense of Adam and the covenant of works. Right? The Sabbath rest is his reward for fulfilling the covenant of works. The other lens you can look at it through is really you know, the covenant of grace, giving grace from the broken covenant of works. It gives rest from all the sufferings and the toil of the fall. And so not only is it good to rest, but this is especially needful after the fall. And then what we looked at is that this rest is not idleness. It is really for the purpose of something greater, namely worship. <clears throat> Today, what I would like us to deal with is one more issue of ceasing that has to do with ceasing on the Lord's Day, and that is with recreations. Now, I have touched on this before in a nutshell. I've kind of very much in a nutshell given my, my case for it in my sermons and Sunday school. Um, basically, the basic reason why in general we are to abstain from recreations on the Lord's Day is because we're to forbear from anything that hinders from worship. Um, you know, if we were to order the things of life, right, um, I would say in many ways work is a more noble thing than recreations, right? If we are to cease from work, probably you should also be ceasing from recreations as well in order to worship, right? The issue at the end of the day is not uh, whether, or, whether or not some recreation can be enjoyed, but whether or not it hinders from the ultimate purpose of the Lord's day. <clears throat> That's the basic argument that I gave. What I want to do today is do a deeper dive on this, but more in terms uh, of a historical perspective. Um, 
In fact, what I find when we come to our confession is that there are two most common sections that people say I, I take exception to. Who can tell me what they are? Obviously, one is the Sabbath, because I'm about to say that. But what's the other one? Pope being the Antichrist. Those are the top two, right? Both really good things, man. The Sabbath, and come on, that's some good stuff, right? right? <clears throat> um, but it is very common. There are a lot of people who would say, oh, I like 1689, uh, but I'm not full subscriptionist in terms of how it speaks about the observance of the Lord's Day. And they would say, I'm, I'm fine with not working. I agree with that. But recreations, no, I don't want to do that. And they might say, you might hear people say this. I heard people in seminary say this. I take a more continental view of the Sabbath rather than an English Puritan view of the Sabbath. Has anyone ever heard someone say that? No? It's kind of interesting because uh, I went to seminary with a lot of Presbyterians, who that's Westminster, that's English Puritanism, and a lot of Dutch Reformed. So that's continental. And you would hear sometimes, I think, some guys say, well, I hold to the continental view, you guys hold to the English view. Um, and sometimes you might, you might hear other people say that as well today. Um, well, I hold to that. Um, what I want to argue to, to you today is that that's not historically really a thing. Um, there is some diversity among the Reformed on the continent and in England, um, but it's not so sharp as, as it is often said to be today. Um, it, it can't really, it doesn't really hold up. Um, it's not true in light of the historical research. Now, you will see some very good, um, excellent theologians today. The problem is they're just not reading primary sources and something gets repeated in a book, and everyone, it's just like a truism. Well, everyone knows there's a continental view and a reform view. Um, when you look at it, actually, you might see some English people who you go, well, that's, that sounds more like a continental view. And then you'll find some continental people, and you go, well, that sounds like Puritanism, right? Um, the answer is somewhere in, in between. There's, there's diversity, but I would say they hold a lot more together um, than, they, than they have uh, apart. And just to clarify, when I say the, it's called the Puritan view, I mean especially that uh, of the view of the Sabbath, this is how it's referred to, um, as encapsulated in Westminster, the Westminster Confession, and also the Savoy, so the Congregationalist version, and then the 1689, because we all have the same doctrine of Sabbath. And then you would expand this from England up to Scotland, because they held the Westminster as well, Right? So that's what they mean by the Puritan or English or British view. The continental refers to the view of the Sabbath of the French Reformed churches, the Swiss, the Dutch, the German Reformed churches, uh, maybe even the Hungarian Reform. You maybe didn't know there were Hungarian Reform, but there, there were. There still, still are some today. So they'll say, well, these have different doctrines, okay? Um, typically... The way this is described um, is, is they'll say, well, um, in terms of recreations, the Westminster, the British, is much stricter. The Dutch Reformed, they're, they're fine with recreations. They would say you should not work, um, but they don't really care with, with, uh, about recreations. In fact, <clears throat> there's a famous anecdote. It's, it's apocryphal. It's not true. It, they can't find a reference to it um, before the 1800s, and it goes like this. 
John Knox, the Presbyterian, right? He flees from, from England at the time because Bloody Mary comes to the throne. He goes to the continent. He arrives in Geneva on the Lord's Day. And what does he see Calvin doing? He's bowling on the Lord's Day where they're throwing lawn, lawn bowling, right? And, his, and depending on where you hear the anecdote from, in some versions, he's shocked, right? Because he holds to the Puritan view of the Sabbath. And this is Calvin. In other versions of the antidote, he agrees with Calvin, and it's just kind of like, haha, even your original guys didn't hold to that, right? Um, you can't find any shred that that actually happened, and the first book that it appears in is in the 1800s, and it's, it's an anti-Sabbatarian book. Uh, so probably take that with a huge grain of salt. Nevertheless, you will hear really good guys sometimes using this. Even the late, great, beloved R.C. Sproul, right? He perpetuated this. Speaking of the two supposed views, he says, to see how these views collided, imagine the consternation of John Knox, who was expelled from England during the reign of Bloody Mary and went to Geneva under the auspices of John Calvin. Knox was shocked when he arrived in Geneva and found Calvin with his family lawn bowling on the Sabbath day. Calvin took the continental view, while Knox took the Puritan view. This difference among Reformed thinkers has gone on for a long time, okay? No, that's not true. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not actually historical. Um, furthermore, some people today argue, they, they, find this, they find evidence of this difference between the views um, by a comparison of the dif different uh, various confessional standards. Westminster, they call those the Westminster standards. It's the confession, the shorter and the larger catechism. The continental churches typically use what are today called the three forms of unity, which is the Belgic confession, the Heidelberg catechism, and the canons of Dort. And they'll say, look, you can see evidence for this. One author, uh, Dr. Daniel Hyde, He's a Dutch Reformed minister in San Diego area. He has an excellent article on this issue. He says, Further evidence of this supposed division is shown in comparing the representative catechisms of each tradition. When one looks at the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 103, the emphasis is on attendance at public worship as well as the eschatological or the typological aspect of the Sabbath day, while the Westminster Larger Catechism emphasizes the day of the Sabbath and the duty of resting on that day. He continues that even J. Adams, Westminster professor, engaged, engaged in this type of argument, setting John Calvin and the Heidelberg Catechism's heavenly focus against the quote-unquote legalistic emphasis of the Puritans and the Westminster Standards. Okay? Now, just real quick, let me read to you from those so you can see why people might come to those conclusions. Um, Heidelberg, uh, question and answer 103. What does God require in the fourth commandment? Answer, first, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is, on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God to hear his word, to use his sacraments, publicly to call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. Secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord 
to work by his Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. So basically, public worship and then the, the eternal eschatological Sabbath. Um, in fairness, if that's the end-all, be-all of the Reformed view, then yeah, we might conclude, okay, there's probably a difference there, right? Um, it doesn't mention recreations at all. Um, however, <laughs> that's not the end-all, be-all. That's their confession, but you also want to read it with other things they said and how they would have understood that at the time, okay? Well, how do we know this? How do we know <clears throat> that this division is not really borne out in history? Well, let's consider some historical sources from the continent and see what they have to say for themselves. And let's start with Calvin, since he is often, with this anecdote, kind of taken as the poster child for recreations on the Lord's Day, okay? Um, <clears throat> Uh, in one sermon, he has a sermon on the fourth commandment. He explains that our rest is not idleness and doing nothing. And he continues, what must we then do? We ought to apply this rest to a more a high and excellent thing. We ought to cease from those works which might hinder the works of God and keep us from calling on his name or from exercising ourselves in his holy word. If we employ Sunday to make good cheer, to sport ourselves, to go to games and pastimes, shall God in this be honored? Is not this a mockery? Is not this an unhallowing of his name? Now, all those things are recreations, especially like pastimes. Um, a lot of times when it says to sport themselves, um, there weren't like a lot of recreations back then, okay? There's just it's like, like throwing stuff is basically... As, as fun as things got that many years ago, right? Surviving was fun. Um, so, but all those things are what typically you kind of hear. Games, um, pastimes is a common term. Um, but he says, like, that's not, that stuff is not really what the Lord's Day is about, right? He says later, but when Sunday is spent not only in games and pastimes full of vanity but in things which are altogether contrary unto God, that men think they have not celebrated the Sunday except God therein be by many and sundry ways offended. When men, I say, unhallow in such sort this holy day which God hath instituted to lead us to himself, is it any marvel if we become brutish and beastly in our doings all the rest of the week? So he's not just talking about recreations. He goes on to talk about things which are always unlawful, right? But basically he's saying, is it any marvel if we're, if we're not only working, but maybe you know, just having pastimes and not spending time, is it any marvel that we are brutish the rest of the week? It's kind of what he says. Um, I don't think Calvin was, was bowling on Sunday at all. Furthermore, one historian says of the consistory, of Geneva. Uh, that was an institution that was organized by Calvin when he came to Geneva. It was made up of pastors and city officials, and they often, um, it was, they would kind of administer discipline, or, or at least admonitions, and they kind of watched over the city in that regard. Um, but one author says, between 14, uh, 1542 and 1609, so long after Calvin's death, the consistory frequently interviewed and sometimes reprimanded people for working on Sunday, 
whether for pruning trees, making lace, selling tripe, fish, unloading boats, hunting birds, or moving furniture. The consistory also disciplined people for engaging in recreational activities that were deemed inappropriate for spiritual refreshment, such as hunting, dancing, banqueting, playing tennis or billiards or, or bowling. So notice there, it says inappropriate for spiritual refreshment. Um, I actually thought about this today because I was tired when I woke up this morning. And I was like, okay, I got to get my head in the game. I got I to gotta finish my sermon. And I was like, I'm going to do some push-ups because that will like definitely wake me up. I didn't do a lot, okay? So like, don't, don't take a lot from that. Um, but if it kind of refreshes you to go about your duties on the Lord's Day, that was fine. These things were seen as superfluous. They were just recreational. They didn't have kind of a spiritual benefit as well. So just take that as, as Calvin. Calvin's own sermons, his own view, and kind of what predominated in Geneva, which is important too because Geneva was sending out a lot of uh, pastors into France, and kind of a lot of times what happened in Geneva would be replicated in other Reformed cities, especially in France. Okay? The next bit of evidence... Uh, comes actually from the Synod of Dort. Synod of Dort was the famous synod or gathering, um, call it a general assembly, it's all the same thing, where we get the supposed five points of Calvinism. It's really, the, as one of my professors would say, the five answers of Calvinism to the five errors of Arminianism, right? It's, you don't define Calvinism necessarily by that, but that's when they met together. <clears throat> They did do other things, however, besides consider just the issue of Arminianism. Um, whenever you get that many theologians and ministers together, um, and it's not a common thing, they're going to probably try to get as much done and make as much benefit out that, and they did a lot of other things. For example, they initiated uh, a project to translate the Bible into Dutch, and I think that that translation for the Dutch language became like the KJV in, in uh, English, or maybe like Luther's Bible in German or something like that, right? But they did consider a whole host of other things. One of the issues that they dealt with was the keeping of the Sabbath. The issue had originally arisen early on when the Synod approved the Heidelberg Catechism, right? They were probably talking about the Sabbath section there, and the English delegation, who were not Puritans, mind you, they were mostly high church Anglicans, because they were sent by King James. King James, <laughs> William Ames, he was a Puritan. He was there, but we kind of read in some of the historical stuff that the English delegation were like, why is that guy here? He's a Puritan. He's causing trouble, right? So these are not Puritans, but they are like Anglicans, okay? They complained that the Sabbath was not really being observed in the city of Dort when they talked about the Sabbath that day. Now, that should not be understood as representing the continental Reformed view that it was more loose or something like that. Um, really, what that's the fruit of is that the magistrates did not enforce it. In fact, the synods before this had petitioned the magistrates to enforce the Sabbath more strictly, but they just weren't willing to do it. Okay, so the English delegation sees this and they complain. They encourage the delegates to petition the magistrates again, please, like have have legislation enforcing the Sabbath. Okay. Well, they brought up the matter, but then one Dutch member of the synod 
moved that they take up the larger issue of the Sabbath in general, okay? He's like, look, I think it would be good to have a broader discussion, and not just how to keep it, but like, how do, what do we affirm about it? Um, you can kind of see early on in the Reformation, people didn't totally know what to do with the Sabbath yet, um, because um, it has a moral element and a ceremonial, right? We've seen that. And so they're like, well, is it binding forever, perpetual, or was it done away with Christ? And you'll, you'll kind of see there was some, that was one thing where there was some um, uh, variety of opinion, especially earlier on in the Reformation. So there were reasons, other reasons, why they should take on and kind of come up with an answer to this. Furthermore, in the province of Zealand, you ever heard of New Zealand? Of course you've heard of New Zealand. That's named after Old Zealand, which is a province in the Netherlands. In that province, the issue of Sabbath-keeping was being debated, and this led again to a question more specifically, how ought we to observe the Sabbath? Okay. In response to this question, the Synod appointed four theology professors, and these are very much Reformed heavyweights in their own day. Um, it's kind of funny that the people, we know a lot, a good amount of names, like, okay, Calvin and Bootser and things like that. There were a ton of other guys who in their own day would have been seen as like just as big, right? You, we just don't really hear about them today. That's all the guys who are named here. They chose Johannes Polyander. Anyone ever heard of him? Polyander? No, okay. All right, all right. From the University of Leiden. Franciscus Gomaris, anybody heard of him? He was big in the debates with the Arminians. Uh, I think it was <laughs> maybe Gomaris who during the synod threw down his glove and challenged one of the Arminians to a duel, and everyone's like, okay, let's take five, please, people. Um, it may have been Gomaris who did that. Antonius Theseus of Hardervik and Antonius Wallaeus of Middleburg. Um, all heavy hitters, all at big reformed basically the seminaries of their days, okay? They were to meet and have a friendly meeting with the delegates from Zealand to come up with some basic guidance for observing the Sabbath together by common consent. Eventually, the rules that they came up with were adopted by the Synod as a whole as, quote, rules on the observance of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. So although it kind of started off as like a committee thing, it ended up being adopted and approved by the whole Synod of Dort, okay? Now, these are actually pretty short, the rules and the theses that they come up with. There's only six of them, and uh, only the last one really deals with the issue of recreations, but I want to read all of them because you can hear how it parallels uh, even the Westminster kind of paragraph, I'm sorry, our own paragraph seven and eight, okay, of, of our confession on the Sabbath. Number one, there is in the fourth commandment of the divine law a ceremonial and a moral element, right? Right there, think about how ours talks about it. There is a moral and a positive element, not ceremonial, but it's, it's the same thing essentially. The ceremonial element is the rest of the Sabbath day after creation and the strict observance of that day, especially on the Jewish people. A lot of writers, I've kind of been surprised by this. I want to research this more. 
a lot of Reformed writers said that the Sabbath for the Jews did have kind of a more of a strictness. We have a more of a freedom on the Lord's Day, and they'll often point to the fact that they couldn't kindle a fire in their houses. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily take it that way, but that's why it says the strict observance, okay? The moral element consists in the fact that a certain definite day is set aside for worship and so much rest as is needful for worship and hallowed meditation, okay? Notice there, it speaks of a holy rest. Ours also, or no, I'm sorry, as ours speaks of a holy rest, theirs is a rest, quote, for worship and hallowed meditation. It's not idleness. Four, the Sabbath of the Jews having been abolished, the day of the Lord must be solemnly, must be solemnly, must be solemnly hallowed by Christians. Ours says it used to be the seventh day, now it's moved to the first day of the week, right? Five, since the time of the apostles, this day has always been observed by the old Catholic Church, or meaning the true universal Catholic Church has always kept this. Six, and this has to do with recreations. This day must be so consecrated to worship that on that day we rest from all servile works. Now, let me just say this. You'll find in a lot of older writers, they say that the works we are to abstain from are servile, okay? Don't read too much into that as oh, well, I'm working on my car, that's not a servile, toilsome labor. Servile, I think, comes because that was the common translation of the Vulgate for the Old Testament word for, like, your works. So a lot of writers going back into the medieval period refer to these works as servile, but it just means kind of all your works, okay? So the day must be so consecrated to worship that on that day we rest from all servile works except those which charity and present necessity require, and also from all such recreations as interfere with worship. Okay? Notice there they mention charity, or as ours says, works of mercy, as well as present necessity, or as ours says, works of necessity. Those are also lawful on the Lord's Day. Notice... It also says um, that basically you are to abstain from recreations as well as long as they interfere with worship or it replaces it, right? Worship is not just to be public worship, that's part of it, but as it says, it's also for hallowed meditation. The Lord's Day is also for private worship, for family worship, and any kind of recreation might be lawful on the Lord's Day, but if it interferes with worship, as it says then it's to be abstained from, okay? So just note, that's the Synod of Dort. Um, That is a a collection of several uh, Reformed churches, a synod of Reformed churches coming together and kind of saying, you should really not have recreations if they interfere with worship on the Lord's Day. And again, the difference between the, the the two views just kind of comes together much closer, okay? Another example I want to look at is Francis Turretin. Um, He was not only on the continent, but he's often a good sounding board, um, not just for Reformed orthodoxy, um, but also kind of the differences among the Reformed. And the way I would describe describe Turretin is he's often like, he's like vanilla, right? You can go to him and you can kind of like, 
whatever he's going to tell you is probably going to be middle of the road. It's very rare for him to, he's, he's orthodox. It's not like, you know, between like liberalism and orthodox, he's like in a halfway house. But kind of, if there's a debate about other things, he's often just kind of like, he's a good sounding board. Whatever is kind of, okay, that's pretty normal. That's Francis Turton, right? He goes on, and he actually criticizes initially those who are overly strict on the Lord's Day. But I wouldn't read into that. Don't read into that that he's talking about the Puritans, because many of the things that he says about these overly strict people, the Puritans themselves didn't hold to that, okay? So don't read into that that he's criticizing the British view, because they would have agreed with him in these criticisms, okay? He says, we do not think that in this cessation, believers are bound to Judaical precision, which some, more scrupulous than is just, maintain was not revoked, so that it is lawful neither to kindle a fire, nor to cook food, nor to take up arms against an enemy, nor to take a journey or continue a journey begun by land or sea. Again, None of the Puritans held that, so don't, don't read that as a criticism of their view. He says, nor to refresh themselves with innocent relaxation of the mind and body, provided they are done out of the hours appointed for divine worship, nor to have any diversion, however slight, to any things belonging to the advantages of this life. He criticizes those who basically like, you can't have any kind of relaxation you can't have a nice meal on the Lord's Day. Um, it's just, it's all about not doing, right? In other words, what he says is, if the duties are, of worship are done, he has no problem with what he calls innocent relaxations of the mind and body, okay? That's pretty, pretty standard, not very different, really, from what the Synod of Dort said, right? They're not to hinder, but if they're done, presumably you could, Okay? Now, from here, having kind of very briefly surveyed, now what I want us to do is to turn and to consider some famous examples of English Puritans, several of whom were on the who were Westminster Assembly divines, and consider what they have to say about recreations on the Lord's Day. And we'll see it's not really substantially different from the views we just read on the continent. Okay, it's kind of one more way of imploding this this sharp division. For example, consider William Twiss. William Twiss was the prolocutor, or kind of like the chairman of the Westminster Assembly. He would have known everybody there. He was very well known in his own day. He wrote a work on the Sabbath, and he was generally, like I would say most Reformed, against recreations on the Sabbath day, but he does make some exceptions. Okay, listen to what he says. All recreations are to this end, to fit us to the works of our callings. As for the refreshing of our spirits and quickening them, and thereby making us the fitter for God's service, as in any modest exercise of the body in private, according to every man's particular disposition, to prevent drowsiness and dullness and attending to God's word, in praying and singing of psalms, I know none that takes exception to that. And that's interesting in many ways. If that was just his view alone, we'd say, well, that's big because he's, he's the prolocutor of the Westminster Assembly. But he also says, I know none 
who takes exception to that. And he knew all the Westminster divines. So some kind of recreations, he calls it bodily exercise, but we could kind of extend that out because it fits you more for worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. He says, I know no one that takes exception to that, right? Consider also the Westminster divine George Walker in his book, The Doctrine of the Sabbath. I really love what he wrote here. I was like, oh man, this sounds like a great Lord's day. Um, He says this in his book on the Sabbath. No bodily sports, recreations, or pleasures are to be tolerated or used merely to cherish the flesh, to refresh the body, or to procure bodily strength, but only such as are in very deed needful in themselves and used and intended by God's people with this purpose and to this end, that they may with more ability, alacrity, and cheerfulness do the holy works and perform the holy duties of God's worship and service, which are proper to the Lord's holy day. Again, what what is the litmus test of recreation on the Lord's day? Does this better help you to to worship God, right? Does it refresh the mind? Um, Does it kind of put you in a better spot to, to have time and prayer and all that? If you can, we have a second Westminster divine saying that that's fine, okay? He continues, and I want to I read this because it's, it's kind of a little extensive, but it's very good. This is manifest, meaning that you can have some refreshments on the Lord's day. This is manifest by God's allowing his people in the law to prepare food and cheerful feasting on his Sabbath and holy days, which are needful to cheer up men and to provoke them to worship him with all thankfulness of heart, also to put on our, bare, our best apparel that we may come decently to God's house, okay? So we see that in the law, and we even see references to cheerfulness. Um, you can have meat, you can have food, you can, and all that he's saying kind of shows God wants us to be comfortable on the Lord's day to worship him, right? As these are lawful, being directed to holy use, So undoubtedly, honest refreshing with recreations which cheer up the heart and refresh the spirits are lawful when they are helpful to holy exercises and are directed to that end as stirring of the body, walking into gardens or fields to take fresh air, being found very helpful to preachers to revive their spirits, strengthen their hearts, clear their voices, sharpen and quicken their wits and memories, and being done only to that end are lawful. So also, walking into the cornfields in summer or harvest, or into meadows or pastures in the spring, both to refresh our bodies and spirits and to give occasion to admire God's bounty in clothing the bodies and his fatherly providence in making the earth so fruitful and to pray to laud and praise him is lawful for us, okay? Now, then he says this, if after all that is done, okay, if after all that's done, he says, and if after public and private exercise, we do walk about many together, conferring of heavenly things and taking occasion by sight of earthly blessings to provoke one another to thankfulness and acknowledgement of God's love, this no doubt is a recreation fit for the Lord's day and helps much our devotion And this seems to have been practiced by our Savior 
who went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day with his disciples, right? So again, if worship is done, you kind of see how even recreations towards the end there even take on kind of a meditative character as well. You're kind of going and kind of even thinking, but it is recreation, right? Um, So that's our, our second Westminster divine, okay? Lastly, for one final example, I want to read from Nicholas Bound, um, who was English, but he was not a Westminster divine. He died several decades uh, before the assembly. But he's particularly interesting because his book is often seen as kind of the, the big book in England that, that started the whole Sabbath thing. Like he really kind of got a lot of it kicked and, and his book was kind of the first big one that did it, okay? For example, one scholar says, Nicholas Bounds' work, The True Doctrine of the Sabbath, occupies a hugely significant place among Puritan works on polemical and practical divinity. For its scope, detail, and erudition, this work on the Sabbath is unparalleled in the Puritan tradition. Indeed, perhaps in the Christian tradition, particularly illuminating our bounds spiritual exercises, which clearly had an influence upon the later Puritan attitudes regarding the practical implications of Sabbath-keeping and worship. So this is like a really huge... If, if there is a book that you're going to find the Puritan view of the Sabbath, you're probably going to find it in Bound. Joel Beakey says, The Puritan Nicholas Bound's famous work on the Sabbath greatly influenced later Puritanism and the Westminster Assembly, and by extension, Western Christendom for centuries. Okay? So it's very big. Well, listen to what Nicholas Bound says. On this day, Sabbath, we are bound strictly to rest from all ordinary works, because six days in the week are appointed for them, and the seventh is sanctified and separated from the other to another end, even the public service of God, and that by God himself. Much more than in it, we ought to give up all kinds of lawful recreations and pastimes, which are less necessary than the works of our calling, and whatsoever may take up our hearts to draw them from God's service. But then he says this, Yet, in cases of necessity... God hath given liberty, great liberty unto us, to do many things for the preservation and comfort, not only of beasts and dumb creatures, but especially of man. And not only when he is weak and sick, but when he is healthy and strong, both in the works of our calling and also of recreations, without which necessity we are persuaded that men ought ordinarily to cease from them. So yeah, you ought to ordinarily cease from them, but if it helps you on the Lord's day, if it kind of, as he says, brings comfort and strength and helps you to more serve the Lord, then that's fine. That's lawful. He says we have great liberty to do that, okay? So there you have three Puritans who are allowing recreations in their proper place as long as they're after worship or it prepares you for worship and it's not a replacement for worship that's basically kind of the same view that you see on the continent. At the end of the day, I don't think there really is a Puritan view and a continental view. There's really just a historical Reformed view, which does have some diversity in it, but that diversity is not so much English versus continent. 
It's more a different of emphases of different theologians and writers, but in substance, I think they generally all agree with one another. One writer says, while it is true that there is some diversity of opinion and practice on the Sabbath in the continental reform tradition, ranging in the Netherlands, for example, from the loose position of Coxeus to the strict view of Fuchs, Coleman, and Abrakel, generally the views of the reformers regarding the Sabbath are much more Sabbatarian than most are used to today. So for that guy in, in seminary who's like, well, I hold the continental view, right? If he were to be transported back into the Netherlands and meet some of his Dutch heroes, right? He's, he's probably a van something. He's like, oh, my people, they'll receive me, right? It'd be like, um, actually, we don't do that on the Lord's Day. What? You hold to the continental view. Well, God, if you actually read their writings and what they fully say, okay? Well, what does this mean for us as we wrap up? I think it means several things. I would encourage you, and I do want to look at, there is another verse I want to look at, we'll look at next week. I would encourage you to try to cease from unnecessary recreations on the Lord's Day and to truly try to just worship and meditate. There are all kinds of ways, and we're going to look at this more next week, that we can meditate. There's even kinds of like meditative recreations that, that we can see. For example, right now, um, I have my normal time that I spend with the Lord in the morning, but later, after we have family worship, um, we put the boys down. I, right now, I'm, I spend a little bit more time studying Scripture on the Lord's Day than I normally do. I'm doing a study of the book of Daniel, so I may take a half an hour, do a little bit more extra study, and then I've also been reading um, just like 20 pages or so of another uh, theological historical book I've been reading. Little things like that on the Lord's Day are, are good. Um, with Carlos, uh, after our normal family worship, we like to do something that is also kind of more than family worship, but not just more of the same thing. And we actually, we would get like videos about like cartoons of, of Bible stories. You have to be careful with like second commandment violations, but there's still a lot of good things that you can find. Um, in fact, we learned our lesson last week because there's a series called Torch Lighters. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that. And we got the one, um, we, we rented these all from our library. We got the one about Jim Elliott. And uh, well, he, they all die in the end. And it's not like that graphic, but it's like it shows them all floating in the river at the end. And there's like reddishness here. And Carlos goes, mm, I don't like they die. And we're like, okay, we'll turn this off. And then the next morning he gave me a hug. He goes, I don't like when you died. And I was like, okay. Because we were like, he's a pastor, right? He, he's like a pastor. He goes to tell people. And well, all the pastors get speared in the end, right? So um, anyway, but there are all kinds of ways that you can do things like that on the Lord's Day. Um, and, and it is truly a delight. And you are also meditating, really, okay? We'll look at that more next week. Um, but that's it for today. Any questions? about recreations on the Lord's Day. If any of you says Calvin Bold on the Lord's Day, so help me, all right? Okay, you guys are dismissed from now. Thank you.